Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and today I wanted to talk about something that that doesn't come up a lot, but is extremely important. And it has to do with what we consider precancerous changes to the lining of the uterus. You know, certain of our patients have higher risks for that, and we need to be able to understand what those risks are, how we can avoid them, and what to do if if you are diagnosed with this kind of a condition. Um, We see most commonly our uh, patients with polycystic ovary syndrome having more risks for some sort of precancerous change to the lining. And so we screen for that with an endometrial biopsy. But I thought it would be a terrific thing to get an excellent uh, cancer specialist in gynecology. And we call them gynecologic oncologists. These are fellowship trained gynecologists in cancer. The way I'm fellowship trained in reproductive medicine, this specialty is fellowship trained in cancer and we call it oncology. So our field of reproductive medicine does join with the oncology team when we do things like fertility preservation. If a, can- if a patient is newly diagnosed with cancer and wants to preserve their fertility, uh, we get involved with the oncologist. They refer them to us for an emergency IVF cycle to freeze their eggs or embryos. That same person uh, is also a specialist in the area that we're going to talk about today. So I am just delighted to have a dear friend. Her name is uh, Shelly Seward. Dr. Shelly Seward is a board-certified gynecologic oncologist, and she did her residency at Ohio State University and her fellowship in gynecologic oncology uh, at the Carmenos Cancer Center at Wayne State University in Detroit. And she is involved in all the societies of of gynecologic oncology and has special interests in immuno-oncology. That's where we augment the body's own immune system to fight cancer, which is really a remarkable field that's growing. Uh, Integrative medicine and clinical trials where they investigate new medications in the treatment of gynecologic cancer. So, uh, Shelley, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us in the Fertility Health Podcast. Um, I know that our patients are going to really uh, value the time that you're spending with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, I, I wanted to get into what what is truly uh, the, the what we call precancerous change. And I know the nomenclature, the way that we used to call these years ago, these were uh, endometrial hyperplasia, and then they became uh, complex, and they had atypical cells. So just bring us up to speed right now with, with the new nomenclature of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. You're right. These kind of changes to the lining of the uterus used to be classified into four different categories. Simple hyperplasia without atypia, complex hyperplasia without atypia, and then simple and complex with hyperplasia or with atypia. Now they just do two categories. You either have endometrial hyperplasia, which does not carry a significant risk for developing into cancer, 
or you have endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, which does cancer carry a cancer risk or is considered a precancerous lesion. I like to equate that kind of to a pap smear. These are the same things you would see on CIN 1 or 2, meaning it's changes of that area that are a precursor to cancer, but not an outright cancer, so we would have to do something about it. Just like women who have abnormal paps, we do a little bit of extra work. Those women who have biopsies with EIN or endometrial intraepithelial and neoplasia need to have some further evaluation and treatment to prevent cancers from occurring. Yes, yes. So, so if you, what, what makes the distinction between hyperplasia and EIN? So it's essentially how it looks under the microscope to the pathologist. Well, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I guess, uh, Shelley, uh, I guess we could start with w what makes hyperplasia different from a normal endometrium, and then we can go on to EIN. I'm sorry. Perfect. So you're kind of leading me where we need to go. And that's why it's important to patients who see you for reproductive endocrinology and infertility, because a lot of your women have, women have a hyperestrogen state or lack that cycle, meaning they don't have regular routine cycles. If they have an elevated estrogen level, that estrogen is what makes that lining of the uterus become nice and thick and plump. If then you're followed by a pregnancy, that pregnancy lives in that nice thick lining. If you're not followed by a pregnancy, you get a progesterone surge and you shed that lining and it's your normal cycle. For women who don't have normal cycles because they have constant higher levels of estrogen, those cells can replicate, divide, replicate, divide to a point where they get thick and fluffy thicker than they should. And because that woman has constant high estrogen and not enough of a progesterone surge, they don't shed that lining. The more those cells kind of replicate or divide and become hyperplastic, they can have errors and become atypical. And so those hyperplastic cells without that atypia, we're not too concerned about a cancer forming, but you need to break that cycle. However, for when cancers are forming or it's a precancerous lesion with that atypia, then we're worried about them developing into a cancer and we got to break that in a different way. So uh, is all of EIN uh, atypia or does the nomenclature for hyperplasia still give us complex and atypia? The majority of cases that are EIN now are going to have atypia or severe complexity without atypia. But all of those other ones, the simple hyperplasia and even complex hyperplasia that's not quite as significant, are considered now just endometrial hyperplasia. So it's really been great that the pathologist broke it down into two categories, benign that we're not really worried about or precancerous that we're worried about, as opposed to those four categories. But essentially, it's how it looks under the microscope. Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis. And I wanted to take a few seconds and share some exciting news with you. My new book, The Fertility Doctor's Guide to Overcoming Infertility, Discovering Your Reproductive Potential and Maximizing Your Odds of Having a Baby is now available for pre-order on Amazon. It's a long title, but I assure you that's because there is so much great information and insight packed within the only general guide to infertility written by a medical doctor who specializes in the subject. That's me. This book has been a labor of love and I can't wait to share it with you all. So give yourself the best possible odds for getting pregnant and having a baby with this concise and encouraging companion available on Amazon for pre-order today. Now back to the episode.
you know, a lot of a lot of patients who come to see me with, with uh, a lack of ovulation, we call them anovulatory cycles. They're just not ovulating. A lot of them have polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. They think that they have their that their body is making too much estrogen. And this is just going out to, to the audience. It, it's not that your body's making too much estrogen. It's that it's not making enough progesterone. And progesterone comes from ovulation to, to eventually result in a pregnancy. So that's where the hormone came from, progesterone, progestation. So if you're making continuous, fairly low levels or even average levels of estrogen, unless it's being countered by progesterone to protect the lining of your uterus, enough of that estrogen is just going to keep on building up and building up and then causing that kind of change. I equate it to if you put a hose in a pool and forget to turn the hose off, that pool is going to overflow. Well, the, the steady amount of estrogen without shutting it off by having some progesterone is going to have the same type of effect. Uh, so the, these patients that we typically will see, uh, Shelley, we do biopsies on, but I you know, I, I'm not really certain that we know what's the best time to do the biopsy on these patients with PCOS. Do, do you have any recommendation? I know one study, uh, many, many, this is probably a couple of decades ago, that said if they were periods were more than three months apart, or if their lining thickness was more than seven millimeters, they were at higher risk of hyperplasia. Do you have a good guide for us? So you're right. For those premenopausal women, we worry about how thick the lining is, and more importantly, we worry about that it's never not thick. So if you have repeat ultrasounds that are thicker than normal and they're not fluctuating, you're correct. It's that lack of fluctuation, that lack of cycling, that lack of having estrogen followed by progesterone followed by estrogen followed by progesterone that puts you at risk. But either irregular bleeding, no bleeding for greater than three to six months, or persistent thickening of that lining on ultrasound are all good indications to get an endometrial biopsy just to rule this out because those women are at higher risk than women who have normal regular cycles. And when you, and when you say a thickened lining, are you saying seven? I mean, what is your cutoff? So for postmenopausal, it's easy at five. For premenopausal, that number is a little more difficult. But if they're persistently at seven or greater for three ultrasounds, then I would recommend biopsy. Yeah, that's, that's a great suggestion. And for the audience, again, an endometrial biopsy is one that we do in the office, typically. Uh, it's with a, uh, a, a catheter called a pipel. Uh, most of them are pipels. And so it's a catheter that passes through the cervix, goes up into the uterus, and will pass several times. Unfortunately, it definitely causes cramping. I have not found a great way to reduce that. Uh, we did a study when I was, a, uh, when I was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and we would inject lidocaine liquid into the lining of the uterus. There was statistically lower pain, uh, but not enough. And so what, what do you, do you have any tricks or tips to, to try to reduce the discomfort from those biopsies, Shelley? You're 100% correct, and I've personally had an endometrial biopsy, and it causes cramping. And we say it's going to be a little cramping, but it's a fair amount of cramping. Everybody has tried their little trick to kind of minimize that. For me, I tend to give preemptive NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Motrin or ibuprofen prior because it decreases the inflammation and decreases your pain receptors prior. But that's all I've known that kind of helps. 
um, with that discomfort and then following up with the NSAIDs after. But yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had something we could just inject quickly? But right now, not much. I'm just a big fan of the NSAID use. Is there one in particular that, that you recommend? I go with over-the-counter ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a, a question that sort of puts you on the spot. At what age would you say is, is a, we, or should we have an age cutoff of a threshold for an endometrial biopsy? You know, when I was a resident, and uh, uh, we, we were very reluctant to do it in the uh, early, uh, late teens and early 20s. But uh, if you think about it, if somebody had menarche or at least completed puberty by age 13 or so, and they don't get a period uh, by 20 due to PCOS, I mean, that's seven years of unopposed estrogen just going to that lining. What, what do you recommend in those circumstances? Do you have a, any type of um, uh, age cutoff? I'm less concerned with age than duration of atypical cycles because exactly. you're right, that's happening more and more. We're also leaning towards earlier endometrial biopsies because we've seen a large insurgence of endometrial cancers in women age 40 or less. That can be related to the Lynch syndrome, which is hereditary. It can be related to the increasing obesity because fat or adipose cells also create the steady state estrogen level, um, as well as PCOS. So for me, I don't have a definitive age because I've taken out uterine cancers from 31-year-old women. So I believe if you have any period of time where you are anovulatory, you have any kind of irregular bleeding, given the minimal side effects or harm that can be done with an endometrial biopsy, I'd rather know than not know. Yeah, excellent advice, uh, Shelley. Uh, so I recently came across a study that they looked at hysterectomy specimens, and, and uh, for the audience again, hysterectomy, removal of the uterus surgically, and they sampled the lining of the uterus with the Pipel biopsy, and they reported a 4% sample of the lining of the uterus. In other words, 96% of, of the uterus was not sampled adequately with a Pipel. Do you have any comment on that? You're right. The endometrial biopsy is pretty good, but it's not great. And so if you have a diagnosis of EIN on an endometrial biopsy, the next step for women who want to maintain fertility or try to have babies, so they want to keep their uterus, is to proceed to a dilation and curatage. Because if you have that diagnosis of EIN, about 20 to 30% of cases will actually have a cancer hanging out in the rest of that lining of the uterus that wasn't sampled on that endometrial biopsy. So whereas the endometrial biopsy is pretty good, it's not as good as the DNC, so we move forward with that additional information. But really, you, we are looking at a pretty good risk of missing it uh, with, with, a, with a low sampling um, uh, results that we saw from that study. Correct. And there's a lot of, you know, user variability with that, meaning you do a lot of endometrial biopsies. So I bet your sampling error is lower than somebody who doesn't do as many because we know there's some skill to getting an endometrial mm -hmm. biopsy appropriately. But you're right. And that's why I'm a fan of even repeat biopsying. If you don't see it once, that doesn't clear you. If you're maintaining these atypical or anovulatory cycles and you're still having problems and it's getting a little thicker on the ultrasound, then I would say definitely repeat the endometrial biopsy if needed. The other thing is there's always this discrepancy. If that lining on the uterus is like 20 millimeters, really thick, and you get out a scant amount of 
endometrial biopsy tissue that doesn't look bad, I would say, I'm worried we missed some of that 20 centimeters. I want to go in and get a little more. So I think it's important for physicians to say, do I believe this information or am I concerned enough that we need to repeat biopsy or even move forward to the DNC? Right. And, and also uh, including the hysteroscope, which is the telescope inside the uterus, uh, because uh, it, it adds that much more being able to see, see, see something that could be suspicious for cancer. I want to, I want to shift over now to our, uh, our uh, real focus is the fertility health. So now you have a patient. I want to take a look at both of those things, the hyperplasia uh, and the EIM. I have yet to see, Shelley, a true consensus on how, which drug, which progesterone to treat for hyperplasia, or even the EIN, of course, if you're preserving fertility, uh, and for how long. Uh, so let's start with the hyperplasia patient. What, what, how would you treat this? What is your go-to uh, for this kind of a situation? So for me, it depends on multiple things. Most of your patients want to have babies. For my patients, if they're older and they have hyperplasia or EIN, the definitive treatment is hysterectomy. But if you're desiring fertility, then as we talked about before, you need to go with that progesterone because that's going to end that estrogen cycle. I'm sorry, that's going to end that continuous estrogen level. There are three progesterones that are mostly given for treatment of hyperplasia or EIN. There are no good head-to-head studies. You're correct. But in multiple retrospective reviews, the most effective is going to be that Mirena IUD where it has that local levonorgestrel product there. They have regression rates in multiple studies going from 75 to 90% for that, and that includes EIN and grade 1 cancers in women who want to maintain fertility with about a 30% pregnancy rate after that because just because you clear this up doesn't necessarily mean you've done a great job at clearing up your cycle problem, so you still have that problem with the infertility. The other progesterones you can use are something called megesterol acetate, and that's given at about 160 milligrams a day, so two tablets, 80 milligrams in the morning, two tablets, a total of 80 milligrams in the evening. The third drug of choice is medroxyprogesterone acetate, also known as MPA. In general, the megesterol acetate is more effective and has higher reversion rates for that hyperplasia to a normal lining than the MPA just because of its potency. But part of it depends on how you give it as well. But you're right, because so many physicians give it so many different ways at so many different doses, and there's never been a good head-to-head trial, you're kind of at odds saying, hmm, which one's going to work for my patient? But in general, if I have a lady who really is under the clock to get pregnant, I will put the Mirena IUD in and give them the oral megase. The problem is, is you need to follow this for kind of regression of that hyperplasia to a normal lining before pregnancy. And that means more of those endometrial biopsies. You really do want to see a trained physician to do endometrial biopsies around that IUD. I do them pretty frequently. I got some skills and some tricks at how to do that uh, well and get better biopsies. Um, But it is possible for those women who say, I just don't want to have that IUD in, then my next choice is the um, megase or the magestral acetate. And I do 80 BID. But again, they all need to be followed with endometrial biopsies every three to six months until regression yeah. with one mm-hmm. negative biopsy after that at least before proceeding uh-huh. to pregnancy. Yeah. Interesting that you do the biopsy with the IUD. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that. That's, that's great. So uh, it, let's, let's switch over to the EIN. So is there a cancer 
stage, and, and our audience knows that there's advanced stages of cancer and uh, stage four is, is the poorest prognosis, but suppose we're limited to the uterus. At, at what cancer stage uh, would you feel comfortable uh, having some uh, preserving fertility uh, and, and uh, subsequent childbearing? Good question. So if you have a woman who has the biopsy with EIN, the next step is they'll go to an oncologist. The next thing we'll do is do a DNC. As we mentioned before, you missed part of that lining. So we get a better scraping with that DNC. When we do that DNC after a diagnosis of EIN, about 20 to 30% will have a hiding grade one or a low grade cancer there at the same time. But the good news about that is if you still have EIN or a low-grade cancer that's confined to the lining of the endometrium, those regression rates on progesterone are significantly high, 75 to 90%. So I like that. However, if we have that biopsy that comes back and shows a grade 2 or 3 cancer, we'll order an MRI. If the MRI shows that that lining kind of seems to be invading into the muscle layer and there's invasive cancer there, the odds of regression or treatment to the point where you could get pregnant are lower in that 30 to 40% range. So we definitely want to rule out having some of those grade two or three cancers with doing that DNC. We definitely want to rule out those cancers leaving the lining and growing into the muscle layer of the uterus by an MRI. Excellent. Michelle, I, I could just keep talking and talking to you. You're just a plethora of information. And I know our audience has, has gained so much from you. Uh, but our time is up here, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have you back and talk about a lot of different areas, uh, including more on fertility preservation. So, uh, Shelly, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, Shelly is, once again, a board-certified gynecologic oncologist. She works with the Women's Care Florida in Central Florida, uh, and she is, um, from personal experience of her taking care of uh, my patients as well as dear friends, uh, she's an outstanding uh, clinician uh, and explains things thoroughly. Uh, so she's a great resource for me and, and obviously for all of us today. So thank you, Shelley. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, Please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.